Fellas, say goodbye to Chuck Sherman, the boy. I am now a man. I highly recommend you join the club. We are doing the wild thing all night. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Sherman. Sherman, I could own this food. Then all you gonna eat? General Sherman realized and understood the importance of house music. So, do you know anything about techno? No. Listen. Get it on. Hey, hey, what's good, everyone? And welcome back to another brand new episode of Sherman the Booth. I'm, of course, your host, Sherman. Today is Wednesday, May 12th, 2021. This is episode 160, 160, and as you can tell, I'm really excited to share this one with you. Episode 160 features an old friend of mine who's been making a name for himself behind the scenes in the music industry for over a decade. My man, Brett Bassick, is in the booth, and we had an amazing conversation on this episode. Brett has worn many hats in his time in music and has been an instrumental part in making artists, producers, and songwriters' careers blossom. In episode 160, we got it all in. We talked about Brett's early days in music. He was raised in Connecticut by music-loving parents and has always had a true passion for all types of music. He got involved in tons of different music-related events and shows that we put on for the community. And he has some incredible stories from his early days, one involving Usher (laughs) that you have to hear. We also talked about Brett's journey becoming the connector. Brett has experience in artist management, development, publishing, A&R, event curation, and has worked at various labels while learning from some of the most experienced people in the industry. Now, Brett has unique insight on how to put together the best teams in order to create desired outcomes. His invaluable experience and ability to bring out the best in others is what makes him a special member of the music industry. We also talked about Building Renegade Songs, which is an LA-based management and publishing company with a focus on artist, songwriter, and producer development at an early stage in their career. Renegade Songs is truly special because Brett makes sure to consider the mental health status of each person he works with. His calculated approach has led some of his artists to work with worldwide talent like Selena Gomez, BB Rexa, Matoma, g Easy, and so much more. Truly amazing what Brett's been building with Renegade Songs. We also had a really special portion of the interview where I asked Brett some of the questions that I get all the time. Since Brett has been involved in the world of management and publishing and has a greater understanding on how it works when you're an upcoming artist, I wanted to ask him questions like, when is it time for management? How do I make money in the music industry? How do I get discovered? Brett gave some amazing insight on questions like this. I'd highly recommend paying close attention to this section if you have questions like these. Truly a pleasure to connect with Brett and get a behind the scenes look on the role he plays in the industry. I love interviewing people like Brett because I strongly believe that they are the bridges that connect all the towns of artists. It's incredible to see how much he's accomplished over the years and I can't wait to see the impact he's going to make on a long-term scale. Much love and respect, my man. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you're really busy and it means a lot. Let's get into it right now so you guys can hear his story for yourselves. This is episode 160 with Brett Bassick. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited right now. I have an old friend of mine on the podcast, Sherman the Booth, Brett Bassick. Welcome, man. How are you? What up? How you doing? Good, man. Thanks for taking some time. I'm in Chicago. Yes. You're in Los Angeles. Can you make me jealous of the weather really quick? What's going on out there right now? Uh, yesterday, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie to you. I went to Disneyland. 
when I was in the seventies. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you said to make you jealous. Yeah, was, you took it to the next level there. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. I love yeah. it. It is um it is so great to be connecting with you. Um, I I feel lucky to have been able to stay in touch with you over the years. Um, we went to college together. We were pledge brothers and. You were in the music industry before we even got to college, man. So it's just awesome to see you still yeah. crushing it now on so many different levels. What a long road it's been for you, right? Thank you. A lot of uh, it continues to be a roller coaster. That's for yeah, sure. no doubt about that, man. We got a lot of awesome questions here for you, but I want to kick it off with something. I know you're gonna like this question, and it's something that we've all been missing. Brett, what is the best live concert or show experience you've ever had? Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, not to go on a little bit of a tangent, go on a tangent. I want it. Um, you know, working in the, in the industry, it can be, it can be sometimes difficult to go to concerts. You start to overanalyze them or think about them from a certain lens. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like the feeling like most people, if they get to go to a basketball game, it's the coolest experience they have of the year. And then all of a sudden if they get to go, like into the boot into like an area where they're not allowed to go to a basketball game it's like yeah that's a life-changing moment yeah even for me like i'll do that and i'll be like oh my god like i just got to go into a special area yeah or like behind like where the players go right and then i'll be like you know backstage at a concert in the in a trailer miserable sometimes like <laughs> i'm so tired I've, yeah i, I don't want to be here right and i try to and, and i think over, I'm sure that I think I have so much of a greater appreciation after this last year, but I think there would definitely be moments where I'd have to check myself and, or like go to like have those like little things where I'd be at a different event in a different industry, yeah, like a movie premiere or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, 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 this is the coolest shit ever. And then I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, like this is I forget. Like sometimes I'd see people backstage and I'm like, why are they so? Why do they think this is so cool? Right, you know, but you've done it a million times. So you lose perspective really easily. So I would say, like, I'm trying to think of concerts that I've been to where I was genuinely a, f- a fan. Yeah, back um, in the day. But it might not have been back in the day. I mean, I will definitely say one of the first times hearing a song that I worked on performed live with Mark mm-hmm. Garrix in front of, like, five to 10,000 people and just saying, like, to my song, like, that I worked on, like, fireworks going off yeah that's special uh, that that was like chills and i can't i can't not say that was one of like one of the most special moments of my life oh and you know those moments like that you don't forget mm-hmm. but then there's also like i love cold play yes play Rose Bowl was so personally just like watching that performance as a fan yeah that one stands out i've been i've seen the who a few times and i'm the who is an important part of why i'm in music so like seeing baba o'reilly or pinball wizard live yeah because i you know my first concert was the who when i was in eighth grade and i recently saw them at the hollywood bowl wow right before covid so both times that was like special mm-hmm. um i would say like those three would probably stand out for for different reasons yeah um love the variety yeah, and for some reason, I don't think I realized it in the moment mm-hmm. because at the time I wasn't as close. Like this, this was a newer group of friends mm-hmm. to me um, who have now become my best friends. Yeah. So when I think back to this moment, I look back and I'm like, wow, 
I didn't realize how important that moment was, but I saw 1975 at Coachella. Yeah. I didn't want to, I, I, Coachella was something I, like, I didn't really want to go. Mm-hmm. I wasn't as close with these friends yet. They were like my friends, but they weren't my best friends. Like people I feel comfortable enough to hit up on one-on-one. Right. But the next thing I know we were at 1975, like we were all like hugging and having the <laughs> best time. And we still talk about that concert. And I'm like, man, mm-hmm. my memories of that one performance at that one festival where I probably saw a hundred people perform and don't remember any of the other performances <laughs> still, I still remember like every moment of it. Yeah. So I think that's important. So I, I love think that. that one's an important one. So I think that's cool. We're going to be unlocking some memories tonight, by the way. So get ready. No, already. I mean, I, we did a little like uh catch up and like, <laughs> just like I, th- we just talked about some things from eight to 10 years ago that I don't even remember. So I didn't even remember. I I remember so it's so crazy. I love I love that question for you because I figured you'd give us a sort of a broad broad range and you know since I've known you you you've always been passionate about so many different types of music man when you were growing up you know, your parents are fantastic people so shout out to the Bassics um, did they raise you on music or when did it first come into your life? Um, so that's a good question. So when I was in middle school, okay, I'm just gonna get this out of the way. Okay, go. Our mitzvah theme was music. Yes. Music. Yeah. I, we can I end had, the interview now. Everything makes sense. <laughs> I had I had posters of Rolling Stones, The Beatles, The Who, uh, Leonard Skinner, Led Zeppelin. Wow. You know, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Like, you name it. Like I mm-hmm. had posters every in every section of my barber's for every table was named after a band. Mm-hmm. So clearly, at that point, I was already, <laughs> um, and I loved rock music. Loved yeah. rock music. My favorite band that was Green Day. Um, nice. Like that was at the time current because like my first album was Dookie that I bought, and then I loved, um, uh, you know, like American Idiot. American Idiot. Yeah. yeah. I'm like classic. So good. Um, but like I would say like. As a genre, like I was a fan of classic rock, so yeah. that obviously came from my dad, mm-hmm. and it was actually funny. So he was one of the first people to get XM radio in his car. <laughs> wow! And we when we would go on road trips, I, on I, it, the way XM radio worked on the car is when it played the song, you actually had to click a button to see who yes. the artist was. I remember that. It was really weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know why, but we turned it into a game. So me and my dad would go on these like long car rides because we were in Connecticut. So we could go to like DC or Boston or Cooperstown yep. or yep. all these different places and we could get there within a few hours. So we would do these little road trips every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And on those road trips, we would play a game and I, we would listen to XM radio, the classic rock station. And yep. was how quickly without knowing who the artist was, could I guess band just you. by hearing the song? <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't know any of them. This one in the beginning, I I had a very general knowledge, right? Um, but I really wanted to be good at this game. Mm-hmm. And by like, you know, our our second road trip, like I could hear one second of a guitar, and based on how the guitar, like the type of guitar and how it sounded to me, the sonics of it and the sound yeah. design, and like little moments of like mix and the the vocals, I would just be like. The Eagles, you know, <laughs> Led Zeppelin. Like, yeah. That's Glenn Fry. Like I could be able to to be so good at at identifying just off of like a voice or a sound or the type of drum, like the way the songs are with a certain type of drums. Like that's Keith Moon of the Who. Like I could just 
know that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like savant-like. Yeah, um, seriously. And I think that was like, the, I think, in developing my A&R ear. Yeah. Like, I'm really great at hearing mixes. Like, there are sometimes I'll hear like a chord progression or a type of sound. And remember, I listen to like probably thousands, if not, I've probably listened to tens of thousands of demos. Yeah. And like, a, a producer of mine will send me a song. And I'll be like, that's the same drum pattern you use on this song three years ago. You got an ear, and bro. Like, and he's like, I don't even remember doing that. How did you know that? <laughs> and it's just like this weird savant thing, you know, like, I don't know how yeah. I know. But I do think that like that type of like um, attention to detail for Sonics started then. So I would say that's where like my my love of this side of music came in, where it was like, I can never sing. Um, my my processing is pretty slow when it comes mm-hmm. to like if I want to play a chord on the guitar from the time I think of the chord I want to play the time my fingers and do yeah. the do the playing. I'm just not my my processing isn't quick enough to be really great. I hear it, I can hear it, but I, I can't take what's in my head and, and and do it. Right. Um, which makes me I think a decent A and R. Yeah. I'm just not a great musician myself. So. I understand. I, yeah. I but I do think like, um, you know my my dad being a, a such a huge guitar fan and classic rock fan and like turning, making games out of it and getting me introduced to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I started playing guitar at 10 years old. Like, I think that, um, I think that was obviously yeah. helpful. That's so special, sure. man. Thanks for sharing that story about your dad. That's really, really cool. Yeah. I'm sure he'll like hearing that too. Yeah. My dad was a huge influence in that regard too. I remember it was like a little built in XM thing. Like it wasn't even part of the radio. It was like this separate thing that was like in like yeah. the, little weird part of the car like barely fit in there i remember that too you unlocked a memory for me with that i love it it's so weird how those like little things like they just like you you don't think about them for years and then they yeah right out um but yeah i mean but i I never i never thought i never thought music was going to be my career yeah when did you like decide i'm passionate about this i remember when you came to college you already had a ton of experience man yeah um, I actually thought I was going to be a film director. I, yes. I was going to go to film school. Yeah. Um, even throughout college, part of me thought that maybe that was still a path. Mm-hmm. I, today, I still think that's a potential path. <laughs> Never too I late. I haven't ruled out wanting to be a film producer and director in my life, and mm-hmm. that being a, an important part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of what I do now, as far as understanding the puzzle piece of something from a creative perspective, the different roles that someone has to play, like that each a, a million different people have to play within to that puzzle piece and how to p- empower and put each person in a position or help connect people or whatever it is yeah. to help bring the best out of somebody for a creative purpose that's bigger than ourselves. Like, I think that is a job of a movie producer or director. I just happen to do that for songs. I, I haven't, not to digress, but I haven't ruled that out in my life. And I think that's something that, I really enjoy doing still, but amazing. I, I wanted to be a film director. That was my dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a long story and I can get into it, but I started booking concerts at 15 mm-hmm. at my local venue. And I, I, I will, I remember pretty clearly, like the, at that time I was trying to make movies with, you know, kids in my neighborhood, kids at school. 15 um, in Connecticut, putting on shows, trying to make movies. Incredible. Like maybe 14. I mean, I started making, I made my first film when I was like 11. Um, I actually, <laughs> <What> camera. 
so my my parents got me like a little camcorder it was like this big yeah 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 and um <laughs> god we are old <laughs> and i i saw tommy by the who mm-hmm. and i which is i rewatched it recently it's a pretty bizarre movie but at the time <laughs> i was so inspired that you could make a rock opera that i turned dookie into my own rock opera and that was my first movie i ever made what? <laughs> and um and then from there, I made like movies with my sister or like kids in the neighborhood. Sure. But as I realized, as I got older, there was a few things. One was I had really shaky hands and I didn't know that you didn't have to hold the camera to be a director. I didn't know that for cinematographers, <laughs> um, the actors or other kids in my town who would act all sucked. Um, <laughs> it always cost a lot of money. Yeah. And there was no way to make money. Right. And it took a long time. So being 14, that got really frustrating really quickly. And I have ADDs or ADHD or whatever. So like if if I continuously run into these walls and didn't get a certain result that I wanted, I would get really like the wires inside my brain would start getting really cross. I was gonna I would get right. really frustrated. So um, you know, that started to become like, you know, that that stuck with me and n- Again, not not to digress too much, but I don't know if you know the story that I, I went viral on Facebook when I was 14 for starting a charity. Yes, I remember this. And this is how the My Usher thing happened, right? Not really. It's all it's all kind of related. It is related, I remember this you know? story, but please tell it. So I was visiting my grandmother in St. Louis who had Parkinson's disease with my yes. my family. And um unfortunately I like she was in her way later stages and she was shaking and I wasn't even allowed to be on Facebook yet at the time only like high school kids were just starting to be allowed on Facebook Mm -hmm. a lot of parents didn't want their kids on Facebook and I wasn't even in high school yet yeah 14 I was in between (laughs) my eighth grade and freshman year high school but I went on Facebook and I saw that all these people were joining these groups it was just like you had your wall and gr- you could join a group. Yeah. Invite your friends to join groups. So people mm-hmm. would make groups like, like my, like if you like apple pie, join this group. It was the stupidest shit, right? <laughs> yeah. And I had just gotten bar bar misfud like a you know a year before, mm-hmm. and so I had a little bit of money, and I wanted to donate some of that money to Parkinson's right research, and I said. I'm going to make a group. And I said, for every person that joins this group, I'm going to donate 17 cents to Parkinson's disease. Love it. And I asked my grandmother, like, what number should I choose? I don't know why she chose 17, but I was like, fuck it. Like, that's the number. Yep. And um, I invited like the hundred friends I had on Facebook or 200 friends. And I said, you should each invite, like, you know, whatever, invite some friends. My thought was like, okay, if I get like a thousand people in the group, I'll give hundred bucks maybe get a yeah. couple thousand I give a couple hundred bucks yeah and it started to like grow really quickly yeah and then like the local newspaper picked it up and then the local news station picked it up and i don't know what happened it, like over the next month it started it became it started becoming the story mm-hmm. because facebook had a really negative connotation to it yeah and there was like why you know the story is why is this 79 year old grandmother <laughs> on facebook what is she doing on facebook mm-hmm. there's a story yeah, they kind of made, and then it was me being like, "I put her there," <laughs> you know. Like, um, I was really worried about my grandmother, and I put her there. <laughs> that young Jewish brat, I love it. 
like, <laughs> you know, like behind Bitch Bliss, like, I was so worried about her and I just wanted her to be better. You know, like, <laughs> like that's how, and I was like, like, wow, like, I just was really nervous and I want her to feel better. <laughs> you know, like, that's how I was on these, like, I watched, sometimes I'll see those clips and I'm like, I should never be allowed to do this ever again. <laughs> um, Stay humble, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I, I just remember that viral wasn't even a word. So I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I didn't know that it's an exponential growth kind of thing either. You know, it right. kind of compounds. And I woke up one morning and there was like 70,000 plus people in the group. And it, the day before there was like 15,000. And in a panic, I like made the group private and yeah. I never took it on private ever again. Yeah. And I called the local news station. I said, put me back on the air. And they put me back on the air without talking to my parents. <laughs> what I was going to say, I went on yeah. live on TV and said, I'm going to raise $10,000 by doing a walk for Parkinson's disease and all these things. Yeah. And my parents were like, what the fuck is he doing? You know, like, there's no way he's going to be able to pull this off. But over the next year, you know, I got like hundreds of kids from my school involved, did a bunch of big sales. I did do like a little walk for Parkinson's event. Um, yeah. Actually, I kind of remember like part of the event got rained out, which destroyed me, but it still like made a lot of money. Yeah. Which was cool. And uh, you know, that was what it was. But um, right. one of the things I did was a battle of the bands, like a concert, a benefit concert. Hell yeah. And yes. um, I called the local venue. They told me like, you need to get a sound guy. So I found someone to give me a skip, help me get a sound guy. They told me how many bands I could book. They get, you know, all of a sudden, it started to make it made so much sense to me. I was like, okay, I book yeah. the bands, I get a sound guy, I get the venue. Mm -hmm. This is easy. This is easier than making a movie. I can just right. put it all together. And then I would tell the bands, like, you guys all have to sell tickets. They're $10 each, $15 each, whatever they were. You know, and then I would do the whole thing. And I just remember, like, whatever happened, like, it made so much fucking money. <laughs> yeah. Like, so many kids showed up to this show. It made so much money. And I remember just standing on stage as the bands performed, looking out into this crowd of like, Couple, you know, probably 100 200 kids and just being like this is the coolest feeling ever amazing um and that was my first show I ever booked and at that point too that money that i raised that night put me over the edge and how much money i had to raise for for this you know charity props to you so, man That's so special so i was like okay it took a year it was now the beginning of my sophomore year because it took a literally full freshman my all my freshman year first it was september sophomore year and i was like i'm gonna do this again and by january of my sophomore year i booked my first like real concert mm -hmm. that wasn't for like it was for business at this point yeah but i didn't know it was for like i knew it was for a business but i didn't know what a business actually meant and i remember <laughs> like after my first couple of shows like i i made like i was making like 500 to a thousand bucks a night doing this which now i know is a lot of money i didn't know at yeah. the time i know I, I had no idea how much money i was making and I remember it was all in like, no one paid in credit cards or anything back then. It was on cash. Yeah. And I remember I would come out with these wads of cash, <laughs> like ones and fives, because that's how people paid yeah. in like these like little like envelopes that were exploding with cash. And I'd yeah. have it in my jacket. Yeah. And I couldn't drive yet. So my dad or mom would pick me up from these shows and I'd be hiding the cash <laughs> in my jacket. And I remember one time I go, dad, look, look how I did tonight. Yeah. And I pull out like $500 in cash that's just falling 
everywhere. And my dad, I don't think he was mad at me. I think it was like an anxiety thing. He was yeah. like, my kid's got a lot of money in there. He's like, this is not safe. We need to go like, we're going to chase tomorrow. And I felt like I was in trouble. <laughs> like, I thought I was in trouble. I was like, did I do something wrong? And he's like, right. no, no, no. We need to go to the bank. Like you need to pay taxes on this. Like you're making money. <laughs> so like we went to chase bank the next day. And like, I remember on the way to the bank, I swear my life, this is how it started out on the way to the bank. Mm. My dad's like, you need to think of a name for your company. And I closed my eyes. And I said, the first thing that I see mm. when I open my eyes is going to be the name of my company. And for the rest of high school, my company is called Road Sign Productions. <laughs> <laughs> so that obviously is how that got, got there. Road Sign. Uh, road Sign. Yeah. So um, I booked, I, would, I started booking shows all the time. And I think, you know, I, I primarily did emo, emo bands. Every once in a while, I'd do a rap show in there. I remember yeah. the first rap show I ever did made like three grand in one night. And I was like, is this real? And a lot of those people that I met through booking concerts really were like, um, you know, I'm still friends with some of them to this day. Um, that really was the foundation of like me finding myself, building confidence. Like, I really do feel like I was this person who felt in a lot of ways, like really different, like an outcast, especially growing up in a preppy town of Connecticut, Yeah, being super creative and feeling different. Yep. And then I found this like sense of belonging amongst these weirdos who played pop punk music and some of them would straighten their hairs or they'd all dress like funny, but (laughs) these became like the, like when I think back to my childhood, like my, 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 those years, like maybe I didn't have this typical high school experience and I had, I had friends in high school and, but maybe I didn't have this, like these prom experiences or these like high school experiences and memories and like a high school girlfriend, like a lot of kids remember having. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I never got a superlative or anything like that, mm-hmm. but I had this like really cool life outside. Like when, when I went home, my, my life started and yeah, I had these incredibly cool experiences, like aside from school that I wouldn't trade for the world and like put me to where I am. And I learned so much that I think is really really fascinating i think when i think back to it of like wow yeah like i read i'll sometimes read emails and i'm like wow these are embarrassing but i still email the same exact way like no <laughs> punctuation like rude message. but it, it, it's funny it's like i had this weird confidence and instinct on how to communicate like in a way that people like answered and i could navigate like bands and agents and whatever that it's, it's pretty cool. Like I, I got to get that experience so young. Yeah, man. I, I think that's, that's really, really special that you were able to find that passion so young in such a genuine and, and raw way. Like it almost was meant yeah. to be. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, there was definitely moments where I would get really burned out and see other kids having normal experiences. And I think yeah. I look back on that and I, I think back, like I remember moments where I would be so upset if I wasn't invited to a party yeah and looking back i'm like why would i have been invited to the party like yeah part of the time part of the reason is if they invited me i had a show that night so why would i have been invited anyway yeah <laughs> and the other part is like i didn't try to get invited i put myself in a position to get invited yeah um maybe another part of it is like I, a lot of kids i think didn't think it was cool that i was in the newspaper or went viral or did the charity stuff or had a business like that that stuff wasn't cool. I don't think it still is cool. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's cool. 
No, no, I mean like in high, doing that in high school. Oh, no like high school. I think that's cool. Yeah, I it's not you. cool. So I, I wasn't like cool in that sense, but I was well known, and I don't think I was well known for being the coolest kid. I was well known because parents were probably like, "Look at neighbor Brett Bassick over there. He's <laughs> he's raising money for charities and running his own business." And the local kids celebrity like, bullied me, but um, <laughs> it, it, again, builds put some hair on your back. This character, right? Yes. Um, but uh, you know, then we were brought up the Usher thing that happened my junior year because I still wanted to be a film director. Yeah. Um, and someone, I think a guidance counselor or something, told me about a website for kids who are really passionate and entrepreneurial. And he was like, "It's called DoSomething.org. You should check it out." So I would yeah. go on there like every day looking for opportunities. Mm-hmm. That just sounded cool to me. And one day on the front page of the website, it said, "Direct a music video for Usher." So I was like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply." So I filled out an application, um, told the whole story about my grandmother, how I booked a concert, but how my dream was to still be a director and, and whatever. And I remember on my birthday, my, my 15th or no, 16th birthday, one of the, maybe 15th, whatever it was, I got a call. I'm like, hey, you made it to the next round. We have some more questions to ask you. We also need your parents' number. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. This so is how young you were, yeah. I was like 15 or 16. Um, I must have been. It must have been my 16th birthday. Yeah, yeah, it was. And um, and then three months later, two months later, um, they call me and they're like, "Hey, are you, can you put your dad on the phone?" I was like, "Yeah." So it's like me and my dad. Or no, they're on the phone with my dad. And he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and "They they give the phone back to me." And like, "Hey, so we just spoke to your dad." You did make it to the next round, and we need you're close. Are you how close? Your your dad just said you're pretty close to New York, so we're gonna have you come in next week, <laughs> and um, we're gonna do an in person interview. Wow! And I was like, this is so cool. And it was at the school of Juilliard. So, uh, that my 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 parents take me into the city. I miss school. This is so cool. And I'm like, <laughs> walk into the school of Juilliard, and I'm. They put me in like a waiting room and it's taking forever. And I'm like, dad, I didn't get it. And my dad's like, we should just go. Like son, like sometimes in life, like, you know, these things happen. Like yeah. it's taking so long. Like they, let's just go. And I'm yeah. like, no, 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 dad. Like, let's wait five more minutes. And he's like, okay. Yeah. You know, really selling it. I was like, okay. So then they're like, okay, you can come with us now. And I walk into a room and there's a camera there. And they're like, we're going to, like, I'm like, oh, maybe they're just videotaping me. And in that moment, a whole film crew pops out. They're all hiding. And Usher comes out. And he's like, yeah, congratulations, Brett. You're coming to Hollywood to direct my next music video. And I'm like, like, what the fuck? I was in shock and I couldn't say anything. <laughs> and I'm like, and they're like, and I'm like, and like, I'm not reacting. And they're like, you're coming to Hollywood. I'm like, oh my God, like, this is crazy. And then like, I give him a hug. And I think it was in shock because like the way they did it too, is he was hiding behind his bodyguard usher was, and then he like popped out <laughs> and then all the cameras come out. And I'm just like, I look at my parents and my mom knew it was coming, but she's still looking like she's in shock. So they were icing you on purpose. Oh, it was all one. They, when they were on the phone with my dad, they explained everything that was going to happen. Oh, they my. weren't telling that I, that it was one big elaborate prank on me. To tell me wow. that I won. 
That's actually, that's so awesome. And I remember why I was 16. And it, it was, this happened in the beginning of June. I'm really good with dates. Mm-hmm. Call me on my, I got told on my birthday that I made it to the next round. This was the first, last week of May, I think, actually. And then I was supposed to go in June. So it was supposed mm-hmm. to happen quick. Right. Um, do you know what happened in June, late June, 2009? No. Michael Jackson died. Oh, yeah, shit. So um, they, like, postponed the whole thing because Usher and Michael Jackson were super close. Yeah. So then, like, I think it took pretty much another nine months until I actually went. And, you know, I just kept booking concerts, but it was kind of this thing where it was, like, the Usher thing, it never went away because at this point, everyone knew I had won. Right. But I didn't go yet. So for nine months, I was just the Usher kid. Yeah. Like, oh, that's the Usher guy. And there were, I remember there was like, dude, I remember the local newspaper put me on the, it was a special edition. Wow. It was just a pic. It wasn't even a newspaper. It was just a picture of me <laughs> holding a camera. And it says local team goes to Hollywood. Wow. Dude, can we get that picture and put it in the corner? I need to see that. Oh, that's my mom to send it to me. Yeah, I need um, that. I'm doing it right now. Can you send a pic of me on newspaper? Local <laughs> tea goes to Hollywood. <laughs> Let me just do a quick search. We need to edit this. We can and see if I type in the newspaper into my phone if it comes up. It's it's um, it's so cool, dude. And well, my mom's really good at saving this shit. We can now see the Basic Pro Shops hat that will be available uh, here one day. We're just creating some demand. So funny. <laughs> um, I'm like, I'm sorry. I want to find this. No, I want to um, see it. It's pretty funny. Yeah, dude. That's awesome. There's like there's there's no sugarcoating how incredibly cool that is. What was Usher like? Was he tall? He's pretty short, oh, isn't he? We, he's really short. Okay. I found a video I took of my mom showing me a bunch of newspaper articles. I just threw that. A lot of it's IDS stuff though. Hmm. Oh. What? I forgot about that. You see it? You can't really see it because it's like I can that I, I can see it though. Wellington goes to Hollywood. It's a special <laughs> edition full page. I'll have my mom send it to me. Yeah. Get a high quality. So cool though. Yeah, so that was pretty funny. Um, but it kind of just, like, that followed me. And the school gave my family a lot of issues. They didn't want me to, like, miss a couple weeks of school. Because they were like, how, he's not, like, school's more important. You know, because I was, like, so stupid. Um, Jeez. But, yeah, that that was crazy. And, you know, I wasn't the only one who got selected. There was multiple kids who would come. And we were all supposed to come together and direct this music video. Mm-hmm. One of them was actually Rami Youssef. Who's now on that show, Rami? He just won a Golden Globe for Best Actor. Yeah. TV show. Yeah. 
He's a really big comedian now. He was one of the other kids that got selected. He was actually the only one that other one that was in New York that got pranked. So it was just me and him. And that's and we became really close through that. Um and then there was like a handful of other kids, but yeah. So you really got all these incredible experiences. Come to college, go through college, and then the guy from Connecticut that goes to Indiana moves to Los Angeles early too. You graduated early, right? I remember that correctly. Yeah. I mean, if you want me to kind of continue the story, you know. Yeah. So not to continue to like go too much into details. So no, it's incredible. um, I was really excited. You know, I I think, okay, so my junior year, I applied or senior year, whatever it is, I I applied to go to Chapman University Film School Mm -hmm. and Indiana University. Those are the two schools. Chapman, where's Chapman? Is that New York? It's LA. And they have the best film school in the country. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, Like they're known for their film school. It's in uh, Anaheim Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I was choosing between my parents' alma mater, where they met when they were freshmen in in college, like (laughs) their welcome week. (laughs) <laughs> or Chapman Film School. And I kind of knew if I went the Chapman Film School route, like I was I was starting. Like that was the beginning of my career. And yeah. by the way, like my last show, my last concert I ever booked, I kind of told myself like that's it. Like I'm gonna book one last show and I'm gonna move on with my life. Yeah. Um, you know, I did go, I went on tour with uh, a friend of mine who's from my hometown and he was a tour ma- he still is a tour manager. He's actually a really famous like really killing it as a tour manager these days of course with a lot of big bands still uh, his name is Britton, and he took me on tour chitty bang the summer before my freshman year mm-hmm. so i got a taste of like that life um chitty bang was huge at that point too and we had an off day in new york it was, i only went out for like a week but we had an off day in new york and at that show i met an a&r at atlantic records named jeff levin mm. And he told me what an A&R did. And I thought that was so cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked, actually, I did work at an agency that summer a little bit doing like, uh, you know, music agency stuff. But I, I, again, I never really thought, I didn't know if music was going to be my path. I didn't know. I didn't know yeah. what I was going to do. And mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, when I was choosing between Indiana and Chapman, like that my senior year, I knew that whatever, just like, if I chose Indiana, I thought I was choosing being a normal kid for the next four years. Yeah. I thought like, I'm going to go back. I think I didn't get that in high school. And that sounded really nice to me was yeah. to be like, I'm just going to be a normal fucking kid. Yeah, man. Um, so I go to Indiana the first couple of weeks. I'm like loving it. I decided to do that. I was like, I'm not going to go to Chapman Film School. This is, I'm going to go to my parents' alma mater and be a normal kid. Yeah. And I get to Indiana I, and I like Foster Harper. I mean, Nico and Nick and Adam Given. And <laughs> uh, I don't know if you remember Chad Silver. And mm-hmm. who actually, our dads were best friends in college. So we had known each other our whole lives. But we yeah, like I remember him. Reconnected and, um, you know, Mike, Michael Sutherland. And I just like, like Jack Path, who was my roommate and all the Acacia kids, like mm-hmm. who went on to become Acacia and Kevin Skinner, like those were my <laughs> homies. Skinner. Uh, I know. I, apparently he's out in LA. Um, I got to <laughs> hit him up. Yeah. But like th- that was my group of friends and I, and I loved them. Um, first few weeks I was like, wow, this is so cool. I have a group of friends and they think I'm cool. And I'm a normal kid and we're going to parties and we're drinking and yeah, cute girls like want to talk to me. Like, this is crazy. Freshman year and I, you um, man, yeah. And then the pledging process started. And 
I decided to go and do the same fraternity that my dad was in, but I didn't know anybody pledging that fraternity. Mm-hmm. But I decided like, oh, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. But all yeah. of my friends went into Acacia and ATO. They all went to a different fraternity. Yep. And all of a sudden I went from having this whole group of friends to within like a few weeks, I had to start over again. Yeah. Yep. And this time a lot of those kids had already been friends. Now I was the outsider again. Yeah. And really quickly, and I was like, this does not feel good. But at that concert from that summer, I remember Jeff Levin, and we had become friends on Facebook. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to Facebook message him and ask him if we'll get on a call with me. Yeah. And I'm just going to ask him if I can, like, intern for him or something. So I get on a call with him, and I'm like, hey, I'll do whatever you want. Like he's like he answered he answered my DM he's like yeah call me whatever. So I we get on the phone and I'm like dude I'll literally do whatever you want I'll send you any music I'll help you out however I can like I and we ended up talking for like two hours it turns out like he was a concert promoter in New Jersey mm-hmm. went to college had a really similar experience hmm. got hired as a consultant at Atlantic Records and a scout at like eighteen nineteen mm-hmm. and um. We, I really just connected with him on like this personal level where it was like, dude, we're two guys who just can't be normal kids. Yeah. And it was so obvious that we had that connection. And mm-hmm. we, we, he's like, listen, dude, whatever you want to like, here's my email, whatever you want to send me. And I don't know if you remember this, but Corella's manager um, also went to IU. Yes. So someone at IU was like, dude, you got to send, like, at this point I started, but now I was like sending a bunch of songs to Atlantic and had this internship and it was rolling and someone was like, you got to send Atlantic Corella, like they're going to be huge. So I sent, yeah. I sent that to Atlantic, I sent Corella to Atlantic. And I think that like started a bidding war. Well, I Probably. Know it, it, it's what well, it did. It started this bidding war by December. So then in December, like, Jeff was like, you got to come in when next time you're in New York and, and come into the office in New York and, 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 and meet me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, dude, this is crazy. <laughs> um, but because of like my freshman year, that first semester, like school wasn't easy. I was, you know, I had that tough experience. A lot of the classes I ended up taking were these like second eight week classes. So they were like quarterly classes. Yeah. I remember those. Yeah because I had withdrew from like a few of my earlier classes and had to pick up new ones. Cause I was like trying to get in the business school. And I was like, I'm not doing that either. That's so yeah. stupid. So then <laughs> one of the only classes I could pick up was a first aid responder class. <laughs> wow. So I was not certified as a first aid responder. <laughs> and I had a duty in my mind that if I ever came across an instance where I had to be a first aid responder, that I took a pledge. Yeah, for sure. First aid responder. (laughs) So I'm walking to the like big, the most important meeting of my life in New York City. It is negative 10 degrees outside. (laughs) And across the street, out of nowhere, this fucking old 90-year-old lady just eats shit on the curb. Oh my god. She trips and she trips before the curb and smashes her face into the curb. And I just see her teeth go everywhere. Oh, she knocks out all of her teeth and she's lying on the ground. And in typical New York fashion, people were stepping over her. Not one person stopped to help her. And I'm like, I've got a duty here. Yeah. And of course, like, morally, I was like, moment. I was going to help her. So I'm like, go get my watch. I'm like, or my phone or whatever I had. And I'm like, I'm going to be late for this. 
meeting at Atlantic, but I got to go save this lady. Yeah. So I, and I swear to God, like I could call Jeff right now and be like, why did you, I'm not going to ruin it, but he would remember this moment. This is unforgettable. So I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. So I decide to like save this woman's life. <laughs> I, so dude, I stop on the side of the road. I like, help her she starts going i could tell she was going to shock so i did all the things that you learn to prevent someone from going to shock i pick up her teeth i call 911 go through all the steps the ambulance comes they thank me i was like here's her teeth you know here's everything that happened i explained to them i put help them i help them put her in the ambulance and then i fucking book it to to 52nd and 6 yeah to the atlantic records office and i walk in i'm like 30 minutes late probably had blood on me i don't even fucking know <laughs> and i'm like i'm so sorry i'm late and they're like what happened and i was like i told him a story about the old lady and they're like you're lying i was like i swear on my life and he, he was like how can i not hire you now yeah so then they give me like this job as a scout as atlantic and it was pretty cool and you know, that was something I did for the next few years. And that, that summer after my freshman year, you know, we started pledge ship, um, spring, together, right? obviously in the spring, which I went back to ATO, which, you know, for obvious reasons, cause that's where all my friends had been, mm-hmm. um, from, you know, from the first semester, but you know, I had this job now at Atlantic, so I had both and I had to kind of like do both, um, live this life as like a fraternity kid and IU kid. And also like balance now that like I felt like I had this duty as like an A&R scout or whatever the fuck I was. I don't even know what they would have called me. Probably, I think I was getting internship credit because I thought, you know, because I wanted to get it for, for credits for school because yeah. I at this point wanted all the credits I could get. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, that, that was, um, again, I know I'm telling a lot of story, a lot, a lot of this story here. I love it. But um, that was the, you know, that was the beginning. And that was, so I was in New York the first summer, about the whole sophomore year. You know, I, I was kind of, you know, sophomore year, I think I wasn't as active. I think I got excited about being in a fraternity by my sophomore, really focused by end of sophomore year. That summer after sophomore year, I went to LA, which was mm-hmm. 2013. Mm-hmm. And I know where, I decided to go to LA like a month, three weeks before I was going to go there yeah. in May. And I didn't, the only two people I knew in LA was Bryce Fox and Daniel Weber, who hmm. was in Indiana. They're the only two people I knew yes. that live in LA besides Jeff Levin, who at this point I had been working for. Right. But I wasn't going to ask Jeff if I could live with him. Yeah. <laughs> so for, for 300 or $400, I lived on Bryce and Daniel's couch in the shittiest three-bedroom apartment you'll, you could ever imagine. I lived on their couch <laughs> for two two months as I as I worked at Atlantic Records. Mm-hmm. Every day, Jeff would pick me up on his way to work. <laughs> I'd go in with him, and I wear this like nice little button-up shirt, all <laughs> ready for work. Yeah, and I, you know, like, and a lot again. I made a lot of friends and contacts in LA doing that. And then yeah. I went back for my junior year, and by junior year, I was like way more diligent. And even though if we'd party till late, I'd wake up, I did all my classes at one or 2 PM. I'd wake up early. I do my reports, my scouting reports for Atlantic. Yeah. At this point I was getting paid like really good money. Mm-hmm. Um, then I went back that summer. I did it again. Went back to LA at this point. I had my own bedroom in, in this house. <laughs> I uh, made it. Was like, I thought it was so cool. Yeah. And then again, I, and then I went 
and then I decided like at this point I was going to graduate, you know, at this point I knew I was graduating college year early. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, starting my junior year, I became in charge of concerts and, and entertainment. So comedy concerts and theater performances for Indiana's for Indiana university, like mm-hmm. the whole school. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause at this point I was like, you know, I knew I was getting back into music. I missed doing concerts so much i did a couple concerts on my own i did an aaron carter concert i don't know if yes you i remember that, that of course. fucking slayed like i made yeah. so much money doing that and then like i did a, maybe i did a couple hours I don't, I don't remember but i was like okay i'm back i'm back fucking <laughs> ready the promoters back baby <laughs> and you know i was kind of bored with indiana as you remember i was starting to get bored with the fraternity life yeah i was starting to realize that, that wasn't for me about my junior year too so I was in charge of like overseeing hundreds of thousands of dollars in budgets that you could just lose to book concerts. It was the craziest thing. So I don't know if you remember, but like this is at a cool time. Like I ended up booking Cruella. I booked B.O.B. Um, I booked Kevin Hart on comedy and Adam Devine, you know, from Workaholic. Of course. So I booked um, Chance the Rapper, which was fucking massive. Kaiza, yep. uh, you know, so I, I I did a ton of shows that were like really fun and successful. You were president of this this what was it called again exactly? So I was a, a director, concert, live entertainment director for Union Board. Yes, for fun. Union Board. That's what I'm thinking of, right? Yeah, um, and Union Board's like got you know they have a lot of different um, directors. Some do like you know um, like social events or yeah. Or, uh, you know, art or film or you know they, they we each get budgets to do different stuff i just was in charge of live entertainment which kind of embodied so uh, dope dude yeah it embodied like comedy music and yeah i actually did uh i brought um i helped produce a broadway show legally blonde the musical at the dusk i dusk love that musical Assembly. i love that was like one of the i thought that was like one of the coolest things i did was fucking produce a broadway show and do that i was born I was more like, I will admit that was the least creative I ever was in something where I kind of had to like really trust somebody else to be like creatively the producer. Cause I was like, I don't know anything about producing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I did, I did all the budgeting and yeah. so it was like brought it to fucking campus and that was pretty cool. Um, awesome. So like that was all going on meanwhile, but at this point I knew after my junior year, like I was done, but I didn't know that my term as a, as a concert director went until like October, November. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is perfect. I'm going to graduate after my junior year, get all my credits done, which I did. And that, that was a lot of work to have all those jobs and graduate in three years. Right. Um, to this day, I'm like, so like I have dreams that um, I wake up and be like, oh wait, I didn't actually graduate college. Cause it doesn't <laughs> make sense how I did that. Cause I was like, I'm not good at school. I never did my homework. So I don't know how I graduated in three years. I literally <laughs> never studied once. Um, but Indiana. I, uh, so crazy. <laughs> but maybe it's because I was doing classes like first aid responder. Yeah, um, hey, do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, long. So I know I'm kind of like digressing a lot, but. No, man, I want. I, I, knew, I, I knew that. I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to do that summer in LA, 2014. Right. Everyone's going to, the funny thing I started to realize about LA is like, you might not see someone for three months mm-hmm. and that's not weird. So mm-hmm. I realized that when I came back my junior year and I started to see people who I hadn't seen in, in, in 10 months. And I, I would come out 
during break. So I, maybe I would see them every few months. Yeah. They had no idea that I didn't live there. They didn't no know that way. I was in school. So I started <laughs> to hit me. I'm like, if I don't tell anybody I'm in school, they'll have, they just think they haven't seen me in months. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is perfect. I'm going to go back. I'm going to do the last three months, my first three months of my senior year. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the Kevin Hart show, the B.O.B. show, the Chance the Rapper, Corella show, all those yeah. shows. Yeah. Just fucking go out with a bang. I had no classes. I was working for Atlantic from school. I was making money, getting paid, doing those shows. Like, it was great. And then Atlantic was like, by the way, when you're done in October, November, we want you to, to we want you to go to, um, we're, we're going to transfer you. We're, we're, we want you to go back to New York because mm-hmm. that's what you got. You got to start over. Like we're going to give you like a low level A&R position, but you got to be in New York. And I was like, at this point, I was like, all my friends are in LA. You know, Bryce and Daniel were, you know, they came from this is the NIU, but they were songwriters and they introduced me to the whole songwriter producer community. Yeah. Working at Atlantic. That was like a lot of the young people in LA who I became friends with just happened to be songwriters and producers. Mm-hmm. And again, I just like thought that was such a cool, uh, underappreciated community of people yeah. that I really connected with. So I was like, okay, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm like, okay. I was like, okay, I'm, this is, um, I'm sorry, it's getting late. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I understand. <laughs> getting into the songwriting world. I know, I know. But anyway, I was like, this is, this sucks. I'm going to have to be, go to New York. Yeah, man. But I was like, you know, I'll do it for six months. I'll see how it goes. I, I didn't know how long it was going to be. So I get to New York and it just so happens that that winter is the polar vortex. Do you remember the oh, polar vortex? Oh, of course, of course. It was like this thing that came across the whole East Coast where it was like negative degrees every day, dark all the time. Negative, negative. And Atlantic had moved offices onto Broadway and this new building that they were in, the subway station was in the building. Mm-hmm. So I would take the train in because by the way, my parents made me commute. They were <laughs> like, you're not getting, you're making so, like I was, I was making like $2,000 a month, which was a lot when you were in Indiana, but now that you're in New York is nothing. That's nothing. And it was a lot when your parents are paying for college, you have no expenses and nothing when, <laughs> you're in New York City. Yeah. So I was like, shit, that didn't go up. So I um <laughs> so I'm like, okay, what am I gonna do? Yeah. So I'm like, every day I'd go in, it would be dark when I left my house. I'd get on the train, the train would take me to the subway, the subway would take me to my building. I would never see light. I'd go up to the building, it's yeah. negative 10 degrees. I would work. I would by the time I left around six or seven PM, I'd go down, it was still dark take the train home, get home at like 8 or 9 p.m. to Connecticut, mm-hmm. get home and do it all over again. And after a few months of that and seeing stories of people having the time of their life, I went back to, I would go back to Indiana like every once in a while. Like I remember I went back for, around Christmas time yeah. for a few of the Christmas par- parties and yeah. I came back again in like February and I'd be like, dude, real life is awesome. I'm killing <laughs> it. But I was miserable. I was yeah. so miserable. And I really wanted to go to LA and I kept saying like, I really want to go to LA, but it just wasn't in my cards. So I met um, another A&R at Republic, down the, which their office was down the street and he mm-hmm. had worked at Atlantic and he was like, listen, dude, I can get you a job here. That'll pay you $3,000 a month. Mm-hmm. You can live in LA and 
your job will be to work with the songwriters and producers that we have relationships with mm-hmm. and to help find us new songwriters and producers to work with for our artists. Yep. And this the, the this group of A&R specifically worked with Lord and Jesse J and um, a few other artists. And they, they all had come from Atlantic, Clinton and I. So I think they had the soft spot for me. And I was like, writing's on the perfect. wall. So I went to Atlantic and I said, I'll stay here if you guys give me $3,000 a month yep. and a job in LA. Yep. And they said, no. So I quit. Dude, fuck moved to, So I moved to LA and I start working um, at this other company. And the, where I was based in LA, I actually shared an office with Randy Jackson from American, American Idol. Idol. Of course. So I'd be like t- taking meetings with like new writers and Randy Jackson would pop me like, yo, what up, dog? <laughs> and like these like young writers would turn around and they're like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's my boy. But like, we really knew each other. Like, that's he knew incredible. I was. He knew my name because we shared this office space together. But yeah, and it was like a small office, but it was like, it was such a cool little office. Um, so for for six months, I worked at this like offshoot of Republic called Lava, primarily on the songwriter producer side, working under this guy Jason Flom. Mm-hmm. Um, and long story short, what was really cool is like, I started managing writers and producers on my own. Yeah. At this point. And this was by like March, April of 2015. This is your first taste of autonomy in this, in this space too. What do you mean? Like you actually are working directly, making decisions more so than like trying to send things up the flagpole. Um, when it came to the management stuff, yes. Um, unfortunately, Jason was going through a lot of personal stuff at the time that was really public in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like going through some family stuff and it, he was a really well-known a&R, so that bled its yeah. way into the press. And right. um, it was really difficult to get him on the phone at that point. And I was so happy to be in LA, but I found it really difficult to work for him because sure. he was based in New York. I was in LA. I was just, I, wa- I wasn't the most important person that was in his business. I was this guy who was just supposed to be his songwriter producer liaison. Yeah. I wasn't anything special to him. Right. But I do remember he came to, he came to LA to visit and he took me out to dinner with this songwriter named Pooh Bear. Yeah, of course. And I'm at dinner with Pooh Bear. Pooh Bear says to me, yo, yo, I'm, I'm writing Justin Bieber's next album. It's going to be his thriller. And I was like, that sounds really cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> so like, what are you, how is, like, you know, and there, there was a whole, like, he, there was this other guy there named um, Orrin Snyder, who was a lawyer, still is a lawyer. And I think he was Pooh Bear's lawyer and his son, Jeremy Snyder was there. And Pooh Bear's like, yeah, I write a lot. Um, I read a lot with Orrin's son, Jeremy. Yeah. His dad's my lawyer. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting situation. At the time, I had just started managing um, this kid, Steve James, who... I remember uh, this. Who uh, was 17 years old from Pittsburgh. Visiting. Yeah. I, had, I had him come out to LA. He was visiting LA at the time that when this meeting happened with Pooh Bear at this dinner. I had just started managing this guy, Evan Wares, who's still a close friend of mine. He was... Um, in one of the pop punk bands from Connecticut that I used to book on my shows. Nice. I just started managing David Pramick, who I still manage to this day, mm-hmm. um, Michael Jade and Charlie Snyder. So I, I had this like little roster. I was also managing Bryce Fox from Indiana. Yeah. Yep. So I had this like little crew. I had this like roster. Yeah. I, was, like, I said to, I said to Poober, I was like, well, you know, I'd love you to work with some of my guys, specifically Steve. Um, can I, you know, can, can I have him come by the studio next time you're there? And mm-hmm. I, you know, I told Jeremy this and Jeremy and Pooper are like, yeah, bring him, bring him by the studio. Yeah. So he goes by the studio, like, I think a couple of days later. And I heard like, I think I was there for like a second. Um, 
but I just remember like that night they sent me the song mm-hmm. and they were like, this wow. is what we wrote tonight. And I was like, oh, this song's really great. <laughs> and Poober's like, yeah, I texted it to Justin. No, don't, don't send it to anybody. And I was like, okay. So I kind of just sat on it. And then I heard like a couple of weeks later, like Justin heard it and cried. That was the only thing I'd ever heard. And I go to, uh, at this point to like, Lava started to expand. Other people started to get like, more people were getting hired in the LA office. And I started to kind of like move lower down the totem pole. So I went from being like one of the only, the only like one of two people in the LA office. And the only person in the LA office was kind of like, um, yeah. you know, she, she wasn't as passionate about writer producers as I was actually yeah. to now being like one of a few multiple people there. And I was the 21-year-old kid, 22-year-old kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just turned 22, actually, while this was all going on. Right. So they were just like, "What? who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, totally. You know? And I remember I went and I said, hey, guys, I, you know, I think I just got a Justin Bieber cut. And someone goes, yeah, you and everyone, goes, you and everyone else in L.A. Because <laughs> everyone in the writing writer-producer scene I didn't realize was like trying to write for Justin Bieber's album. Yeah, yeah. And everyone thought they had a Justin Bieber cut. Yep. So I end up um, – now like a couple few months ago at this point you know i'm managing all these writers and the justin cut song isn't going anywhere Mm -hmm. i haven't heard about it again and i never brought it up no well what's going on with that i was like i don't know um but what i did know by the way is that the day before that session with pooh bear steve had written a song with um eben my friend from connecticut who Mm -hmm. played my shows in the band and I guess that was the song that they had rewritten, basically, like those chords and the foundation of that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it became of this this song that was written in this session. So I was like, okay, you know, I don't really know what's going on. Um, and I get it. I wake up from a text one day from someone in the New York office, and they're like, hey, by the way, we're we're getting rid of your position. We don't need someone to help us with songwriters and producers in your role anymore. And I was like, okay. Like at this point, I was like, I'm managing these writers and producers. Yeah. I'm not gonna tell my parents, but I don't know what I'm gonna do. Yeah. And then like I got I got I introduced one of them to a, a couple of them to different publishing companies, including Pramic. And I was like, okay, doing the math, I'm like, I can make a little bit of money. I can make enough money off of doing these publishing deals just with these guys to survive for six months. But if I don't survive this, I'm gonna have to get a job or right. Not to management anymore right right right. and i was scrolling through instagram that like within that week and again you know what i had heard, what, what the truth was and what reality was i had no idea at this point yeah I, it's so hard to tell yeah and i didn't have enough relationships or contacts to really find out and i'm scrolling through instagram and i just see a picture of justin bieber getting purpose tattooed on himself and that was really how myself and Evan and Steve all found out that um, we had the Justin Bieber cut. Like the so Justin Bieber. This was the track. It was purpose. And yeah. he named the album after that and got it tattooed on himself. Yeah, and that's how we all found out. Clip that, bang! Holy fucking shit, Brett! Fine um, so from cool. above, man. After all those things sort of just falling through and slipping through your fingers, this happens. Yeah, and trust me, that wasn't the end of the roller coaster, but um, it wasn't all up. It, ha- it has, you know, it still continues to be this ride. But, um, you know, I remember I was at Chipotle with this other guy who was like a young A&R and we're sitting there. 
and he's like, we're sitting outside. He's like, yo, has it hit you yet? You know, has this, any of this hit you yet? And I was like, I don't know. And I'm thinking about, and in that moment, there's a bus stop right outside Chipotle. This double-decker bus just pulls up. It's like, and like screeches up to the bus stop behind us. And we both turn around to look at this big-ass double-decker bus. And it's wrapped in purpose. Oh, my God. <laughs> like the, the branding. And I'm like, dude, I think it just hit me. Like that's a moment <laughs> I won't forget. That was like pretty cool. And obviously the album came out and really was a huge album for him. And yeah. from there, um, that led me to meet people at Scooter Braun's management company. Um, that led me to meet Martin Garrix. Um, from there, Martin and I early on built this relationship. Um, and what came of that was, you know, I, you know, I sent him In the Name of Love, which went on to be a massive record for him. I think it just hit a billion streams. Yeah. It's like one of the top 10 biggest dance records of, at least on Spotify of all time. Yeah. Or something like that. Some weird stat like that that I just read. Something crazy. With like, Baby. With BB Rexa. Yeah. Um, you know, that was pretty crazy. Um, yeah. I think that all those things, you know, obviously Steve had done some of the production on that. And a lot of that came from a philosophy that I think we all had on, you know, that Steve could be this guy who could take really great songs and help make them great records through this really cool sound he was doing. Mm -hmm. um, that became, a, you know, that, that became in the name of love and the foundation for it where, you know, Mark with Martin and everything. But, you know, then from there, I really have continued, you know, continued to grow a management company. But something I then realized too is like, there's this darker side, there's this underbelly to the songwriter producer world yep. that I found really important, which is this mental health side. I started to yeah. find that within a couple of years, a lot of these writers and producers that I worked with had these anxiety or self-sabotaging behaviors that I think made a lot of sense to why they were songwriters and producers and not artists. And I think <laughs> it's totally natural, but to me, it became really important to me, like, how do I help with their mental health and, and them not standing in their way just as much as a manager, just as much as providing opportunities for them and yeah other things i realized too is like as a manager in the publishing world like you live and die off of the successes of your clients and um you're basically like you know a glorified real estate agent you know <laughs> you're, but you're but but you don't control any fate yeah and so there was a lot of levels to it that i thought were important to me to kind of think about how can i be different how can i approach it and you know, that's kind of led me to now be more involved on the publishing side. I have my own publishing company. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I still do producer management. Uh, you know, I still work with some of those guys who I worked with from day one, like David Bramick and Michael Jade. And along the way, you know, you know, six years in, not everybody, you know, it's all just a growing pains of like, you know, who you're the best manager for and you know who wants to stick it out in this world it's not easy yeah absolutely so i you know i have worked with a lot of different writers and producers but i have good, you know good amount of clients right now and i'm really proud of all of them and you know i can say i've worked on you know 300 to 400 records at this point uh crazy dude that have streamed like i was i think i was saying earlier like i think they've streamed over 8 billion times just on spotify and i'm really really proud of that you know i'm proud of that cultural impact that these guys have been able to make and being able to be a, a creative partner with them along 
the, along the way is really important to me. But I'm also always thinking for myself as someone who is creative myself, like what are the things that I can do mm. to be more, you know, that, that utilize more of my strengths and weaknesses and my, yeah. And, and, and my, uh, you know, creative abilities. So mm-hmm. to me, you know, there's, you know, I think where I'm at right now, like as of today and where, co- you know, COVID made the writing, like changed a lot in the writer producer community. Like, you yeah. know, Zoom sessions can only do so much. And yeah, it's life that I've devoted a big portion, you know, portion of my career to. And I'm, I wouldn't change it for a second, but how can I now make today or tomorrow the beginning of the ne- this next chapter? And that that's what I'm constantly thinking about. And, you know, as I dive into a world of publishing and tech and, um, you know, doing Twitch and doing podcasting and being a voice, I think, for the writing community, because I do believe that there's laws that need to, needs to change. There's transparency that needs to change. There's a lot that needs to happen. I'm like, this, I want this next chapter to not only be like, how can I be an advocate, but also an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I, I think that's a huge part of my growth that I'm excited to pursue. And, you know, I think a lot of my clients that I have stuck, have stuck this out with me and that I've stuck it out with, I think we're all really excited about this next chapter for us. Yeah. And we're all going to go in our careers together, you know? So yeah. Longevity, it's, it's, man. It's, it's really interesting, you know? Um, it is. I'm really, you know, there's a lot of different artists that my clients are working with right now that they're all really excited about. I think, mm-hmm. you know, they all have Grammys in their futures and platinum records. And for me, that's going to be great for them. That's what we've worked towards. But I think on a personal level, when I'm like, those are the, you know, I don't want to just think that their achievements are my achievements anymore. It's like, I, I want to set my own, continue to set my own goals, my own achievements that I want to set and all boats can ride to, with the tide together. And I think that's Hell yeah. where I'm at right now. There's enough room for a few more surfers on the Brett wave. I love that. Yes. That's awesome, man. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about Renegade songs on, on your website, just to give people sort of the, the generalized description it's LA based music management and publishing company with an emphasis. And I love this on artist, producer, and songwriter development at an early stage in their careers with a focus on mental health too, which you mentioned, what was sort of the, the reason for you to really make all this formal and who else is on the team? And if you want to give a shout out to some of your artists on the roster as well, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say they're all doing great. I have some new younger guys like Griff Clausen and, uh, this guy, Sam Dressler, he goes by skis who are just like, I think their progress during COVID, for, you know, I signed them at the beginning. I, the amount of growth they've been able to have at a time when, you know, it was really difficult. I'm so excited for their future. Mm-hmm. And guys I've been with like, you know, like I said, for five, six years, like Charlie Snyder, David Pramick, um, Michael Jade, like, they all have so many great opportunities on the horizon. David's work, like a couple of these artists that David's working with, you know, without saying names, because I don't, you know, some of this stuff is confidential. Sure. But there's a couple of new artists that he's working with where I'm like, we all have chills when we listen to the songs and we're like, these, are, <laughs> these, these should be not, if these aren't not made for Grammys, like I don't want to set the bar too high, but like, I, I think someone's making a mistake because they're <laughs> that special. And, um, <laughs> You know, he's working with some incredible artists that you 
would recognize the names of. And I'm really proud of his growth because, you know, the day we met, I told David, I was like, you know, if you really want to, you can be the biggest producer in the world. And he's like, I don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> and I think now he sees it. I think he's, you know, he's still got a ways to go, but I yeah. think he can, I, if anything, I believe it more now than I did six years ago when I told him that um, in our first hang. Wow. And, you know, Charlie Snyder, who he introduced me to, who was his roommate for years and he's a frequent collaborator. David's like, he's now found his own lane. He's actually like killing it in the UK and he just had a number one in Australia. Mm-hmm. And that's just awesome. And, um, and Jurek know, too, right? Jurek's in Finland. So there's Jurek, Micah Gordon, and Tobias. And those are guys, producers who I've recently been working with who they're not, they're not new. They've been around. Yeah. Um, so I kind of came in at a f- part of their careers when it's like the development there wasn't like they didn't need, they didn't have a, they weren't these young guys who had so much to learn, but they needed someone to take them to the next stage of their careers. So like, mm-hmm. you know, Michael just worked with Neon Trees and he's working with a lot of really cool artists. And Tobias Wincorn, you know, when I met him, had worked with, you know, Lizzo and Panic at the Disco. And yeah, you know, that was a really great, that's not a, that's not, that's not a bad place to start. No. But opposite the last, of the last couple of years, yeah, the last couple of years, it's been about like he's a very he's a very specific type of producer because he deals with samples. So it's like, how can we build that business? Yeah. Uh, so every single person, it's like you know, I go about it differently. Yurik was the number one producer of all time in Finland. I saw that dude. Insane. He's like literally like, Mr. Finland. That's incredible. Yeah, he is. Um, He's like the guy, like he, he's a judge in their version of idols a few years ago. He was like, <laughs> he's had so many hits, What a stud. Um, but it's only, it's all in Finnish. So for us, it's like, how can we move <laughs> it again? Obviously it's made it difficult because you can't come here as much, but it's like, okay, you've done it once before we can do it again in the U S you just got to start writing your songs in English, bro. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Let's see what happens if your songs aren't finished, man. Um, so I think that's really fun. But again, I, you know, I'm really excited about everyone on the roster. You know, I do A&R work and work with Artie and I'm really excited about his next album. Um, you know, I'm always looking for new people. Uh, so I think it's, it's really exciting. So for a lot of upcoming artists out there that either are looking at help in terms of publishing or management and stuff, like, is there a point, and you just kind of mentioned it in one way or another, it's not a one size fits all. Every artist is different. At what point do people see, need to start thinking about that? And how does that process work? Um, that's a really good question. I will say that, you know, I don't care if you went to Berkeley or NYU songwriting program. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you're classically trained. Um, you know, Charlie can't, when I started managing Charlie, he didn't sing or produce. Um, obviously, it's a huge help if you do. Yeah. But like, it doesn't, to me, I'm, I'm open-minded to anybody that tells me that they want to be a songwriter or producer. Yeah. But, it, but it, it, a lot of it depends on their self-awareness. I say yeah. that, okay. So I, I look, I really do look for three things. Number one is self-awareness because yeah. in the songwriting world, you have to be self-aware to understand what your talent is, how to communicate, how to help develop artists, how to build friendships, yeah. how the industry works. You have to be educated on that too. You have to understand like, really, you know, what is the difference between a song and a record? Because if you don't understand that, then you're in for a lot of trouble. And a lot of songwriters don't. 
because you're here to write the song. Now producers yep. are in charge of making that song. Like that's all. If it's a great song, they're in charge of making a great record. Mm-hmm. But a lot of producers are also great songwriters. So it it, it gets it gets confusing. But to me, that self awareness of understanding from that's all really important. Um, number two is work ethic because you can have all the self awareness in the world, world, but if you don't want to work every single day, like Mamba mentality, it's like, yo, become the greatest version of yourself. You don't want to be. It's like, yeah, if you don't want to do session, write a song every single day, spend the time that you're not writing songs, like building relationships with other writers, working with other, like meeting other artists, you know, coming up with concepts or melodies or listening to music, like being inspired. Like if this, if your world does not revolve around this, going to concerts, finding new artists, you know, being an entrepreneur and a hustler yourself, like if you're not working hard at this every single day, then good luck. Because it's going to be very difficult for you. You might fall into a hit. Good luck sustaining it if you haven't already gotten through those habits. Yeah, you know it's like mm-hmm. it's not easy. Um, so I, I, you know, more now than ever, that's something I look for, especially with COVID has made has really added a magnifying glass to that. Yep. And number three is talent because you could have all the work ethic in the world and all the self awareness, but if you're not like really talented, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be more difficult for you. I think there are people who have those two things, and you know, maybe are seven out of 10 on talent and they can go on to be the biggest songwriters of all time. Cause if they really know their talent and they, they have good ears, they can still make it and do really well. Yeah. But you, if you're a 10 out of 10 on talent, but you have no self-awareness or work ethic, I, I don't give a shit. Yeah. So that to me is really important. Straight so I do up. think I don't, I don't care if you're Yurik and you're coming off of 30 number one records or whatever the fuck he's had in Finland and all <laughs> in a different language. Or your Griff Clausen, who recently graduated from UCLA, and is has never had a cut in his life. I'm interested in working with you if I if I see that talent. And uh, you know, Skis, for example, too. He had never done a session before when I signed him. We we were in the same friend group, and I just kept hearing these like random songs he was doing late night, like after a night of partying. And eventually, I was like, dude, I gotta. I'm I'm just gonna sign you on a whim. Yeah. <laughs> so, he came from Omaha, Nebraska. Like no one knew who he was. Yeah, you know dude. I mean, and to me, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It's like I'm just gonna identify those things. And if I do think that there's room for improvement, I that's okay. If you're not the hardest worker yet, if you're not the most talented, if you're not, if you don't have that self awareness, but I see the signs that it's there inside of you to have that. Yeah. That's okay. Like I, I'm here as a coach as well. Like I'm here. Yeah, to those things can be developed. Develop those things. Um, you know, not everyone can be a, a Kobe or a LeBron where they're just a freak and they work <laughs> until, you know, they they know how to they they have all like they they have the body of a god. They know how to work harder than everyone else. <laughs> they, you know, they have all that things. You know, and I'm using them as an example because I love sports and it's the best analogy. But yeah, not everyone can be perfect. You know, we're in an industry of anxious people who, you know, are creative and crazy and we deal yeah. with that crazy. So, yeah. again, I, I deal with a lot of that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think that's why the mental health side is really important to me because you could have all those things, but you can have an episode or an anxiety or depression or something that being creative and ha- having to constantly be vulnerable and make music and, you know, the truth is of being a songwriter is you might write 250 songs a year and yep. 
you're considered a success if 10 of those come out. Yeah. So I always try to say, like, listen, if you had 10 songs come out, you're you're a success. You know, even mm-hmm. in any sport, like your batting average doesn't have to be a thousand. Yeah. But I think for songwriters, when this is their art, this is something that they made that's important. Every song, I'm like, well, write something that makes you feel something. And then I hear and I'm like, well, this doesn't make me feel something. Or someone else, <laughs> they get denied by someone else. Like that rejection takes a toll. Like a lot of times it's really difficult to look at 230 no's and 10 yeses as a success. Yeah. So it's inevitable that that anxiety and depression can sometimes overtake you. And when it does, I, I try to be as understanding as possible and work with them and be there for them and, and these writers and be like, that's totally okay. Yeah. It's frustrating for everybody. Yeah. It's frustrating for them to have to go through that. It's frustrating for me when I'm like, listen, like, I'd rather you be working every day and making music, but if that's not in your cards, it is what it is. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, what Renegade is, and I think where I see it going is um, it's, you know, I see myself having an A&R staff in the near future and a, a, and a sync staff and an admin staff and, you know, resources for writers and producers to reach levels of success. But I want to tr- now give a lot of what I've learned to the, to other, I don't want to just, it's like, you know, the saying, like, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man a fish, feed him for a life. It's like, yeah, I could one by one keep doing this over and over again yeah. with writers and producers and artists, um, you know, finding them early, giving them the resources, setting up sessions. Once they hit that wall, of, we're helping them through it, mm-hmm. going through those humps. Mm-hmm. It's inevitable. It's like a, it hap- at some point it happens with every single person. Yeah. Or I could hire a few ARs who are young versions of myself or do have different skill sets that I don't have. Mm-hmm. Teach them how to navigate those um, those things. Yeah. Those instances and do each do those with ten or fifteen or twenty songwriters. And mm-hmm. I'm looking forward in the, forward in this next chapter to expanding that. Well, I also have a different elements of a staff who could provide different resources because something that people don't understand about publishing is the only two ways you make money is sync not the only two ways but like really the only two ways yeah. right now <laughs> spotify changes some of their laws because no one's buying music anymore right is radio and sync yeah so it's like okay well if i'm signing you and we don't even think there's a like we're we're saying you might not have a radio six radio success for three to five years yeah and, and we're going into it then where do we think you're going to make your money? So it's like having a sync team that can help them build businesses and under helping the writers and producers understand and an artist to it and, and utilize that sync staff and working with the sync staff that understands that early in a writer producer's career, this is how they might be able to make their money. And if you look at a, yep. a lot of my clients who six years later still having careers, like we've built them businesses in sync before they had success in music so that they could have money in their pocket to survive and recoup yep. their deals. And that's really important. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm really blessed for some of the relationships I had from internships and my scouting at Atlantic where yeah. some of my friends went on to be music supervisors or whatever, which is how I worked on. Like, you know, I did a few, helped do a few songs on bright, you know, the Netflix movie. Yeah. Really? That's amazing. I think, uh, birds of prey, um, Birth of a Nation. Uh, I had a song in soundtracks for like Mercy and Planet of the Apes, and it's like hell yeah. You know, some of those came from different you know clients, uh, seeing people at their publishers, but mm-hmm. a lot of those came from 
relationships that I built, like like Bright and Birds of Prey and, and Birth of a Nation, like that came from my friend Joe. And I was a intern scout. He was an assistant and we our cubicles were next to each other. And we, you know, so it's like, but those relationships led to six figures in business total between me and and my clients that helped all of us survive in the beginning. And, and I think that's really important to pass on to, again, it's like, I can keep making these relationships and one by one going for them, but it, to really grow and continue to do this for as many songwriters as possible, it's, I'm looking forward to that next chapter where it's like helping sync people who their only job is to help build businesses early in the careers for these writers and producers. Yes. Um, Key where they're businesses. I, I love and, that. And then the third part of the triangle for me is this admin side, this creative services side, which is like, you know, metadata collection, you know, clean metadata is so important registration. Um, you know, that, you know, collecting your money and knowing where all the money is supposed to come from and making sure you're collecting all your money. There's no rhyme or reason to how money is collected in music right now. It's <laughs> based on laws that are hundred years old that were written, that the laws were written for sheet music you know, before, before any of our grandparents were born, Jesus, they haven't been changed. Um, they're not advantageous to streaming royalties for songwriters and producers and artists, um, especially on the publishing side. Yeah. And we don't, you know, these laws are going to change. We don't know when, but in the meantime, we can only work within, you know, the walls of what we're in. And, yep. you know, I think the most important thing is understanding that like, you know, if you don't go out and actively every day try and collect from SAG-AFRA, um, from Harry Fox, from yeah. Sound Exchange, Neighboring Rights, uh, ASCAP and BMI, PROs, whatever they are, CSEC, you know, SOCAN, whatever it might be, wherever you are, if you don't go collect on those royalties and actively chase them down, then no one's going to pay you. It's fucked up. And to me, it's really important to build a team of people who their job is to do that because for me i'm playing fucking if i'm doing sessions and i'm pitching songs and i do have a team but it's like if i'm doing all these things i'm playing whack-a-mole every fucking day <laughs> jesus like, well this 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 and then you know and yeah, yeah yeah you know i think for me i think again this next phase growing a publishing company i i, I just want to have a publishing company with you know market share and that has a reputation but you know i see myself putting every single writer on a, on a wellness plan, you know, where it's like they have mental health resources and mm -hmm. credits every month that they can use almost like a class pass, like doing something that I was doing before COVID and I had a lot more planned out, which is so sad, but I would do these like mental health writing camps, wellness retreats. And I wouldn't call them mental health, but I'll call them wellness retreats or whatever. And I'll tell you something, and you know, I know I'm talking a lot, but one thing that I learned that was fascinating mm -hmm. is from doing these camps, I thought that the only ways to really do a mental, like a mental health focus. Yeah. You tell me, like, if you think, what do you think of if you hear like, Hey, I'm doing a mental health camp or wellness camp. I mean, first impression Kumbaya circles of some sort. Right. Yeah. Like, Oh, meditation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's great. And some people love that, but that's not right for everybody. And dude, sure. you know, me and my friend, Leslie, we do this camp in Texas every year. Unfortunately, COVID, we haven't been able to do it for the last year or so, mm -hmm. which is so sad because it's incredible. And we get this like 
ranch in Texas with ATVs and a lake and boats and a gun shooting range, you know, like for shooting pigeons and let loose. You know, it's it's fun and adrenaline rush. And I remember that, you know, we did this camp and you know, is it there was was a wellness focus to it, but I did two days and it was a social experiment. I did two days of a yoga, swimming in a lake, kumbaya meditation. Mm-hmm. Some people liked it. Some people, most people did it. Right. And like, you know, go, get, they felt groggy walking into writing a song. But then the other few mornings we did, we went to the gun shooting range. We rode ATVs. We like played sports. We, we found ways to get everyone's fucking blood pumping. Mm-hmm. And the best songs were written those days. And to me, it's like wellness doesn't just have to be meditation, massages, or whatever. And yeah. For some people that – my point is it still is a lot of that. I still think meditation is so important. I think yoga and those things do a lot of good for the, for the psyche. Mm-hmm. But it's a balance. It's just as important to do stuff like that as it is to do like – brain stimulating activities and work getting your blood flowing and working out and really like feeling like we're riding an ATV, ATV through the Texas forest. Like this is an unbelievable experience that no one are shooting a gun and the rush you get from shooting a gun at a target. Like it's undeniable, like how cool that is and how fun that is. And, yep. you know, that was something that I learned that like changed my perspective on like, how do I help, you know, um, how do I help, the mental health of my writers and like but like you know we all go through it like i was in a funk the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. where i was just in my own head and then on my yet yesterday i i honestly like canceled all of my meetings i had a group my, my group of friends we were we were all kind of feeling this similar sluggishness and i yeah. don't know what was in the air but i think you know it comes in waves where it almost feels like the world is synced up that when it hits us it <laughs> all hits us yeah and we were just feeling it and we heard disneyland opened up and spontaneously we're like let's all go to disneyland right yeah. now yeah so we booked a hotel in in and like you know wherever disneyland is and yeah that morning we all woke up at 7 a.m yesterday and we all went to disneyland you know and it's like fuck yeah i woke up today feeling more clear-headed from being on roller coasters and being with my friends and having that like you know that's <laughs> You know that's more valuable than than anything to have yeah. to be able to wake up with a clear head and, and motivation and and reinvigorated creativity and stuff and it's like if whatever you have to do in this business to get those things and whether you're a writer or a producer or an artist or yeah a music executive or in any department whatever you do it's like you need to know yourself and know like how can you help yourself continue to progress in your career and I think in the case of writers and producers I I just think that I have a lot of ideas on again, once COVID is over in this next chapter. Yep. Um, again, you know, I think there's uh, on the Adam and tech side, there's a lot of advancements that can be done and I want to be a part of making and bring that all together to build a really, you know, what is Renegade Songs? Like, I think, I'll, you know, right now it, it is a boutique management and publishing company with an emphasis mm-hmm. on development and mm-hmm. mental health and wellness and all those things. But yeah, what I think it can become is something so much bigger. So you know, I know it's kind of, again, another long answer, but dude, I hope that kind of sums it up. Brett, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much I personally have learned from the stories that you've told. And I gotta you can say, you're like probably the best podcast guest because you, you, everything fucking makes sense, man. I've just been hanging out here listening. This has just been like schools <laughs> in session. Like 
I I mean, I was already I was already proud to know you with all the success you've had, but to hear you kind of walk through everything, man, to see where you're at now, like I got mad love and respect for you, bro, for real. No, likewise, and you know, when you when you hit me up about doing this, I, I was I was genuinely stoked and um you know, podcasting is something that that I've wanted to do and the fact that you're you know, you've done so many episodes through COVID, like that's inspiring to me too, because I think yeah, sometimes, you know, I can say all this and be like, you got to practice what you preach. Like, this is something, you know, like I'm proud of you for, for, for not just saying this is something you want to do, but actually doing it and killing it and doing all these episodes. Cause like, thank you, man. That's really awesome. Yeah. I mean, those, those three things, like I, I try and do that as well. Like I, I've tried to believe in my brand more than anybody else and have fun with it, dude. You know what I mean? Like only if only your dad and my dad and us listen to this episode, that's fine with me because I've had a blast yeah. and it Absolutely. made an impact. I, I'm doing this to make an impact on my life and on others. And the second that I really started accepting that over the past two, three years is when the podcast grew the most. So oh, that's awesome. Just like hearing you open up today and, and tell these incredible stories. And I know there's so many artists out there and even people that listen to podcasts that aren't artists. I think there's a lot yeah. to be learned from what you said about just doing what you love and sticking to that and believing in it. I appreciate that, dude. It's, it's, it's cool to hear you say that. Yeah, dude. Fun, dude. I, re- I really mean that. And, and um, congratulations on everything. And Renegade Thank is the you. shit, bro. Like, Oh, I, I, cause we, when we locked down this date, whatever, a few weeks ago, I immediately hopped on, checked out your website, listened to all of your artist shit. People got to <laughs> check it out. Renegadesongs.com. You can see the bios on who he's working with and all the songs. Clean website, by the way, nice and clean. Like it a lot. It's, it's got a ways to go, but thank you. Well, whatever. Um, it, it, it makes sense. <laughs> I know. Um, well, so tell me what, what were, not to put you on the spot, but what were some of your favorite songs? from from those lists that, that that you listen to oh i'd have to go through but you know i that's why i brought up your bro because i started i started looking at his shit because like i i mean of course like you see grammy nominated on some of the other artists as well um i mean of course i'm familiar with Artie. like been in the been a huge inspiration for me like from a dj perspective he's globally <laughs> renowned i love anjuna i love his his track with Audien, even his recent yeah. remix, I, 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 ILB, um, Michael Jade, yeah. s- sick producer, multi-instrumentalist. I'm like right. so taken back by people that are so naturally gifted at instrumentation yeah. like that, bro. It's insane. He's a Chicago guy. Is Chicago he? Guy. He's from Northbrook, which is funny because before I moved to Connecticut, I, I, I lived in Northbrook. So that's yes. A, small, a little small world coincidence. That's awesome. And I, I, I'm glad you brought up skis. Cause I think that's so cool. Just like a guy from Omaha, Nebraska, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter where you are. He moved out to LA with no job, not really any relationships, built a group of friends, you know, kind of found his way. He's only 22, 23. And like, yeah, I think he, he should, I, you know, as he progresses in his career, he's someone you should talk to maybe have on it, you know, as he, starts to build his discography because he's absolutely man and that's that's my thing too is like i only want to have people on the podcast who are passionate about what they do and and have something to say about it 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 doesn't matter to me how big or small you are and there is a point where i started this it'll be five years in september sherman the boot this is episode 160 so it's like (laughs) i was a small guy at one point and i know five years from now 
there's still going to be so much more room to grow, but like, I got no plans of slowing down. So when I hear about artists like that, dude, I'm from Zionsville, Indiana, man. You know what I mean? Like that ain't shit. Zionsville fucking Indiana. And I'm trying to do my thing here in Chicago. And it's just inspiring when I hear about artists like that. And that have made it too. everybody comes from somewhere different, but we can all use each other to help. And I think that's been a silver lining of COVID, at least in the artist community is the actual community aspect of it us all wanting to be on the same team for once. Totally. You know yeah. what I mean? I think that, uh, I think you're hundred percent right. I feel like, you know, it's actually been cool to see in some ways how zoom proved to us that, I mean, obviously in any industry, but music, I had my doubts, man. I really just didn't know if it was going to work. <laughs> I, I was one of the people being like, how can a song that makes you feel something be written through the internet? Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't know, like, I don't, it, it was, it, it wasn't like, I thought like it's impossible, but I, I didn't know. Um, and, um, you know, now I'm like, I've, like half of the sessions that my writers are probably going to do for, forever might be on zoom. If you know, before it was like, if Yurik was in Finland, he was never going to get the opportunity to work with Charlie until Either Charlie was in Finland or Yurk was in LA. Yep. Now it's like, you know, Charlie's working with this young female artist right now, and she's in Louisiana. <laughs> and, you know, she comes home after school or whatever, and Charlie gets <laughs> on with her at 3 p.m., which is 1 p.m. our time. And Yurik, it's 8 or 9 p.m. his time. And he jumps <laughs> onto the session too. And it's like, dude, what? That would have never happened before. So I think there is a, oh, some good that came of this for sure. The, you know, this community and, and, and how it brought everyone together in really yeah. interesting ways. Dude, but for real, it's, that's, that's actually incredible. I couldn't agree more. And that actually has been a huge thing for me in the past year is I, I really enjoy the in-person experience with podcasting, but I've gone all over the world with interviews the past year, man. And it's just, I don't know. It's fucking cool. I don't know how else to say it. You know what I mean? totally no I, I love that but dude it's it's, it's been just so incredible connecting with you again i want to stay in more consistent touch um yeah. i for real bro like what you're doing is is so dope and Thank you, bro. It's good to all the people that might know us from our past we never stop never 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 feel like it's too late to start your dream whatever it is guys for real yeah, vtl baby oh i haven't heard that in a long time <laughs> you know, they, you know my, my little sister said that the other day and i was like whoa that's so funny that's right oh my god it's been a minute (laughs) holy shit right you're the man thanks so much for taking some time man this has been a genuine pleasure i'll talk to you later bro all right homie thank you man do i love sherman the booth oh hey i think you do too hope you enjoyed that piece of content if you're looking for more Make sure to go to my YouTube channel and hit that subscribe button and turn on all notifications so you don't miss any upcoming Sherman the Booth interviews, live sets, new music, exclusive artist interviews, Sherm's Word, subpack reviews, and more. This is your one-stop shop for everything entertainment. Cheers.